is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are sharing minimally edited interviews with three leading patients slash patient advocates who participated in episode 45, each of whom chose a major topic from the summer to discuss. In this conversation, Wayne Eskridge of the Fatty Liver Foundation shares his enthusiasm about FDA's recent approval of ELF as a prognostic tool for cirrhosis. Wayne and Louise Campbell broadened this conversation into a general discussion of the benefits of non-invasive testing and the need to explore liver disease more aggressively when working up patients. Louise's mantra for the liver, and I quote, when in doubt, rule it out. This episode not only covers a topic that is important to NAFL Dinesh stakeholders, it also gives you a somewhat more personal, less edited look at Wayne, Louise, and me. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. So right now we're here with our good friend Wayne Eskridge, president of the Fatty Liver Foundation, and Louise is, as I noted, the introduction is with us as well. Louise, how are you this week? I'm very well, thank you very much. Okay, good, good. And Wayne, how have you been these last couple of months? How's your summer been treating? Oh, you? gosh, I've been good. Out here in Idaho, uh, we don't have the kind of challenges that you guys have been having, so my uh, summer's been a little warm, but otherwise it's good. Here it was warm, and then as you know, now it's been wet. As Louise pointed out, I literally got the surface tsunami yesterday, but uh, today, everything is dry, and except for the fact that some areas are without power and that there's a lot of cleanup, everything is good. So, Wayne, as you know, this episode is for us to talk with some of our favorite people about what each of you thinks is one really important thing that's happened in the past three to six months. And I know yours is a lot more recent than that. But So, what would you like to bring to us today that we should be focusing on? Uh, yeah, thanks, Roger. I'm really pleased to see the FDA approve ELF as a non-invasive blood test for uh, fibrosis. And it's not so much that it is the greatest test that anybody ever had, and it isn't going to answer all of our questions. You know, there's multitudes of, of studies and work to be done, but this demonstrates that we are going to get to the point where we have the ability to get beyond the biopsy and to begin to deal with this disease in earlier stage in ways that are more acceptable to the patient community. So I think that's just a huge step forward. I'm just really pleased to see that come out. What does it say to you, good, bad, or indifferent, that the indication is really prognostic as compared to being an initial diagnostic? That's really the first step we have to get through. The liver is so difficult to analyze anyway. It's a small steps kind of problem at this point. But if we can add accessible rigor to the process that the average physician can have some confidence in and we can begin to push that decision point earlier into the patient's journey, we will have benefited people greatly, even though it isn't proof positive of what you want to know. It's a guidepost, and we have so few of those that tell us very much about what the liver itself does. We think about this disease more in terms of how terrible it makes us feel so often. And we struggle with the fatigue for years. We struggle with weird symptoms for years. We have all kinds of uh, ultrasounds and CT scans, and those don't really get us to the kind of understanding that we need to have as patients in order for us to act in an appropriate way, and as well as for our physicians 
physicians to come to a decision to diagnose. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about medicine is that before you can have a diagnosis, you have to have an intent to diagnose. And with NASH today, we don't intend to diagnose it until it's really pretty bad. And so anything that swings the needle a bit in that direction is good news to me. Interesting thought. Louise, do you have any thoughts about what this does or doesn't mean? Because I'm going to try to connect some dots in a minute, but I want to let both of you guys go first. Wayne's completely right. I think anything new, and it's not new, we've been using it throughout the world for about 10 years. In Europe and the UK use it a lot, and we certainly have it in our level guide guidelines or, or in fact our guidelines for diagnosing cirrhosis over the age of 16 nice have used elf with a cutoff of 10.51 and those guidelines came out in 2016 so we've certainly been using it here a lot of the time the one thing it could do is add yet another test with a different cutoff point to an already muddy area of different cutoff points for different things adds levels of confusion we do know that lots of people struggle with to even get ASTALT which Stephen always goes on about is if you can't get anything else, get ASTALT, nearer to one, the bigger the risk. So there will be people who get confused with more and more scores and more and more add-ons and how you get access to it. But I think it's a welcome development. Wayne's also right that to get a diagnosis of any form of liver disease, you have to be looking for liver disease. The majority of liver disease, as we know, is silent. We've got an organ that regenerates, does not give us a lot of biomarkers to be able to detect that. So we've got to be wanting to find disease early. We've got to be alerting the public and everybody to be looking and thinking liver. Rule it out, don't rule it in. Um, it would always be my rule of thumb. It may well be involved in nearly everything that we're looking at today in lots of diseases from dementia all the way through, obviously, to cardiovascular diabetes. So rule it out if in doubt. So I think it is that awareness that has to come up from that. So I welcome the FDA's approval because it will add that streamlining in some respects. But it'll also add a grid reference of use this, 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 or this, whichever one use a, an assessment of some format. So, Louise, because you're a participant and Wayne, because I know you listen, I'm actually thinking back to the episode that we dropped last week, the one with Jorn Schottenberg, where we talked specifically about cirrhosis and the idea that cirrhosis is an increasingly attractive drug development target because based on some of the work that's been done with non-invasive testing and most specifically with MRE, it's the place where we have the ability quickly to link a KPA score in MRE to a prognostic outcome. You know that fundamentally, if your KPA is five versus eight, KPA of eight gives you 40% greater chance, I think is the number if I remember correctly, or it's 40% overall chance, I forget exactly, I'm a little foggy this morning, it's flood fog, of um, having a severe event within a three-year window. Now that's helpful for diagnostics and for drug development. I'm wondering, and I don't know enough to know the answer, but I do to ask the question, whether this is kind of a parallel thing for patient treatment. Talking about the ability now, once we've diagnosed advanced fibrosis, to use an ELF score to be prognostic of progression of cirrhosis and severely mortal or morbid risk will actually help us prioritize who needs to be treated, get more aggressive about ways to do that. So we'll ask this when we get to physicians as part of this episode. But 
what we think the relationship is maybe between the push to take cirrhosis as a target for drug development and then having this prognostic tool that you can actually take into patients outside of the clinical development process just in everyday care. Using any of the non-invasive biomarkers to be able to track health is going to be welcomed, particularly in areas of advanced fibrosis. We've seen it particularly in hepatitis C. If we resolve hepatitis C, we watch, for example, fibrous can come down, we improve cardiac outcomes. There's a lot of evidence in other areas of liver disease where we remove the cause and the liver regenerates and we can track that with non-invasive markers. I agree with Jean and Stephen and all of the other experts that come on here is that we can see that trend. It's been discussed at Easel this year, last year and Arzold and I'm sure it'll be discussed at Arzold this year coming in the fact that we've got more and more evidence of using non-invasive biomarkers to track improvements in health to avoid biopsy now being an endpoint in trials. Where we cross the line with cirrhosis is we really don't want to biopsy those individuals. We can track it nicely. We can use FibroScan in ascites, but it's more complex. You'd have to go higher in the liver. You can actually even tilt the bed to get the ascites to move down unless it's loculated. Um, I think there's lots of ways we can use techniques, and I think ELF does add an extra level of protection for that. The information and the data will come out in the research studies looking for that. The more we can improve non-invasive diagnostics, the more that they should be welcomed into all studies where liver disease could be playing a part. We know that Tracy Simon's recent piece on just simple steatosis improving or increasing mortality, it was significant. These patients are in all of these other studies, whether it's cardiac, whether it's diabetes. So how do we know the liver isn't influencing all of these cardiac studies or diabetes studies? Because we're not looking. We're doing a simple blood test. We're not actually looking for simple steatosis. So Kathleen Corey did it on the PROMISE study. How many people got an index cardiac event who had simple steatosis? When we talk about ELF, we're looking fibrosis. When we're talking about nephil fibrosis score, we're looking at fibrosis. We've talked a lot on the programme and Wayne said it again today. We're looking for fibrosis. Fibrosis, we know, is a major outcome indicator of liver disease, as the question is. We also have to be now looking at simple steatosis. We have two concerns in the liver. Simple steatosis is not benign. So we need to be looking at that from one aspect. Simple steatosis doesn't necessarily always progress, as we know, to NASH. So therefore, we have lots of different levels, but we need to be assessing all of those levels. And there's no real biomarker yet that can assess everything to do with both of those parameters. We need to get better at it. But we cannot simply now just say fibrosis has to be the the only focus. I think Naeem said it on this program a couple of weeks back, is that he's told patients before, you've got fat, but no stiffness, don't worry about it too much. Actually, he's now changing that dialogue. If you've got fat in the liver, we need to address it somewhere, even if the liver is soft and not showing fibrosis. We can't pick these people out. So I think ELF is a definite addition, and it's great that the FDA have recently passed it because it's a positive sign that we're moving, and the FDA are moving to non-invasive markers of choice. Thanks, Louise. I, I really, really enjoy the talks that you guys give because you're dealing with the research, but, you know, my world is one of the patient journey and the whole process of the years that it takes to really deal with cirrhosis and the NASH and to recover in any significant way from that is a tough, tough journey. And we need to be able to monitor that whole process and things like ELF from a serious cirrhosis point. If you can measure some progress, so meaningful to patients 
patients to be able to see some progress, some positive reinforcement that the things that they're doing have meaning because you don't necessarily feel better in a short time. In a short time with liver disease is six months or so. So I think that those are kind of things that uh, are good harbingers of the future that have benefit beyond the question of the research issues. So as we get more knowledge about how we can measure the liver dynamic, I think we'll improve that and that will be hugely important to the patient journey. And I agree with Louise about the steatosis issue because the very idea that a significant amount of fat is just by nine, just I find at this point in my life, I think that's just a crazy thing to say. <laughs> but I'm really pleased to see the movement towards viewing that as a maladaptive process that needs to be managed before it becomes something that really impacts the organism. Wayne, let me ask you a question about your own experience. You, you made the point that it takes a while after diagnosis to actually start to feel better. In your case, how long did it take after you received your cirrhosis diagnosis and started working on your diet and everything else to actually feel the difference in your day-to-day quality of life or sense of life? I was probably faster than most people because my wife and I were able to just flip the switch. When the doctor explained it to us and, and we had our teachable moment when we understood what we were up against, that day changed our lifestyle. We actually went home, we cleaned out our pantry and our refrigerator and we started in a new life and most people are unable to do that. So our course was quicker, I think, than is typical, but it still took three or four months before I could say that it had made any difference at all in the way I felt day to day. And it was six months before I could start to say, yeah, you know, this was a this was a good idea. From your experience in talking with others, what sounds like the more typical experience? I'll ask Louise, I'll ask you the same question. There are people who feel some benefit really quickly because it depends on how ill you are. It it depends on exactly where in this tipping point you find yourself. There's certainly a period of time where a a small change can feel pretty good pretty fast. But if you're further out on the limb, it's going to take you longer. So it's a very individual kind of response. But most people will sense something within that six-month time. And a more typical report is they'll talk to you positively after a, a year or so for a lot of people. Wayne, can I ask you, what was the first thing that you can recall noticing improving? Was it your sleep? Was it mood? Was it energy levels? What for you was the first thing that you thought, ah, that's a lot better today than it was two or three months ago? I very quickly lost 20 pounds and I was amazed that I actually just felt better. My mood was better. I was able to negotiate life more easily and we gain weight minute by minute. We add these fractions of a bit to ourselves and over the years we normalize feeling less well. 
we forget how it was when we didn't feel that way. And so it creeps up on us. And when you make a change like that and, and you make a significant difference in just the weight that you're carrying over a period of time that is short enough that it sticks in your mind, you can really sense that. And that was the biggest thing for me is I was just a typical American fat boy. I didn't realize it. You know, I thought I was perfectly normal. And, and here I was carrying around 50 or 60 pounds more than I should have. Excellent. And, and to be fair, that when I have people talk to me, that's what they notice more. They notice their energy levels. They notice their mood changing and they sleep better. They're the three key aspects. You're not going to break the Olympic records. You're not going to do anything on that. But as you say, the quality of life that improves with just those changes over that period of time just keeps people improving. Wayne said it earlier, you need something to keep motivated. Just each one of those gives you that momentum. The improvement in the L score, improvement in your fibrous gain, improvement in your Fib4, everything. You take all of those small wins because they build to big wins in the end. And that's what the time and commitment's about. And that's why adding ELF to this now is just a, another level that can help. So let me ask a skeptic or devil's advocate kind of question. One of the challenges with a lot of the non-invasive tests used in a vacuum is the high level of false negatives and the problems around positive predictive value, much better rule out tests than rule in tests. So that what we wind up doing is telling people that they have disease that they might not have because we do a better job of ruling out than we do of ruling in. How do you think that affects any of this transaction, how the physician looks at it, how the patient looks at it? I'll take that question first because then I wouldn't like to hear Wayne's thing. I think from my perspective, I would rather investigate something and prove it's nothing than not investigate something and it becomes an issue. The chances are low, certainly from aspects like Fibroscan, it's got a really good negative prediction factor and for the, I think it's 97, 98% of saying that you've not got significant damage. However, if you then, and if you take the old machines they only ever had kilopascals they didn't have cap right. i'd rather know somebody's got a low fat level and a low stiffness to be fully sure but i would certainly never ignore which has happened because cap was invented for a reason it was there to give us an insight into the fat content of a liver and it may not be as a dynamic fat fraction five percent very accurate but it certainly gives us a good gauge to be able to do a teachable moment and a life-changing time with somebody and it is that if i can't change somebody's if the softness is there but the fat content's high there's a learning opportunity there's a teaching moment there's that change moment because that fat is only going to get bigger if that's been there but 9 out of 10 people reduce their fat levels irrespective once they've had those scans I would rather err on the side of caution and keep everything lower and within the acceptable parameters for cap and kilopascals and take that risk than not investigate something that might then go on to be a problem for the minority of that times that that's going to happen I'm going to say, I'm terribly sorry. We went on, we investigated, and we've proven that our concerns were unfounded. That is so much nicer to say. And every person that I've ever been present with where a doctor said that or we've said that has really said, oh, fantastic, thank you, but thank you for looking. Nobody's ever said, oh, I don't, I didn't want you to look, or, oh, it's a shame you spent all of that time and effort on me and gave me that value. It, it, is show, it shows value that you're concerned about somebody's health from a health perspective. But I'd love to hear Wayne's... <laughs> Oh, no. Louise, that is that was very, very nicely put. I absolutely love the idea that I have a very solid rule out test. And if 
I have some ambiguity on the top end, all that does is it allows me to ask more questions. The thing that we hear so often in the patient community is, I looked in my records and they said I had fatty liver 10 years ago and nobody ever told me. Why didn't anybody ever tell me? And it is so harmful to people's perspective of the care that they've been receiving from their physician to realize that they could have learned something about their situation much earlier and, and been able to perhaps do something about it. So absolutely, give me a really good negative evaluation and work with me if there's some questions about whether I may or may not actually have that. And But make it clear to me. You know, that's part of the job the doctor has is to have people understand the merit of the test and the value of the information that it provides so that people don't get false fears out of the higher test. It's good to leave ambiguity on the top if you can be absolutely clear on the bottom. That makes sense. That makes excellent sense. Okay. Hey, so this has been a great half hour. Uh, so for 28 minutes and 17 seconds, not that I'm counting, but I do have a clock. Is there anything else, Wayne or Louise, you'd like to add on this particular topic? I could be controversial in oh, go the for fact, it. which you may or may not want to keep in, but you, I could be controversial because Stephen's not here in the context that when you use an excuse like we don't want to alert the false positive, then you cop out of investigating something that may well be something really important. We should never opt out of going that extra mile for any individual. Donna's always been right. You treat the person, not the condition. So when we opt out by saying we don't want to use the false positive and we're using that minority as our excuse not to investigate, then I, I get concerned about patient welfare and where we're cutting the line about saving money or not being cost effective because they are the minority, eh? Yeah, the concern that I have, Louise, the degree that I have one in practice, isn't what happens when you put this tool in the hands of people like you or Stephen. It's when you ask people who don't have a commitment to the disease to integrate it into their diagnostic process and they take a look and what they learn is they're going to get all these false positives. By the way, I don't have a drug anyway. That the combination of those two might actually serve to demotivate the practitioner. And and by the way, I mean, it's good news that you don't get patients who say, wait a second, you told me I have this and now say I don't because that would be the ultimate demotivator, right? Stephen's thing about one anecdote is worth uh, how many DGIM studies? One anecdote of a patient saying, you told me I have this and now you're telling me I don't. And that's confusing. I'm disappointed or I'm angry or I'm frustrated. Well, if that doesn't happen, that's huge. My question is more practitioners. Yeah. And, and to be fair, we're dealing with liver disease. We're dealing with probably the world's biggest disease of late diagnosis and inability, therefore, to treat it. Mm -hmm. So 75% of all end-stage liver disease is picked up and it's untreatable. 55% of it is picked up in the emergency room over the age of 50. So we have missed a lot of opportunities because it's not an organ that tells us. So therefore, to use any cop-out to investigate something that leads to a terminal illness very quickly, and yes, I've been personally affected by that, less than four weeks from diagnosis to death um, with my father-in-law recently. So you just can't use it as a cop-out. So if you want to say I'm controversial on that, I am, but I think we treat the person. Louise, if you were never controversial, we wouldn't keep having you with me every week. I usually allow it to be Stephen. Well, <laughs> although, Wayne, if, if you caught the Delta variant and the liver episode, there was a moment when Stephen said, I'm going to be controversial and said something. And then Louise said, no, I'll be controversial and countered what he said. And then I said, no, I'll be controversial and, said, and took a third position on it. And we were all out on various limbs, just hoping Donna would not be the one to saw it off behind all of us because we all could have fallen in the drink together. <laughs> 
I did hear that episode. That was a good episode. Yeah, thank you. So, Wayne, what would you like to be your closing thought on this? I, I guess I would like Louise's comment because I think that that's a failure, absolute failure of the medical community to take a position like that and to simply decline to be knowledgeable in the area that they're supposed to be experts in. And that, I think, doesn't uh, speak well for medical education or the adherence to the to the principle of what the relationship between the physician and the patient is. We, we hire doctors to protect our lives, not to allow us to become profitable medical events in their life. And I think that they owe us a better performance of that. And if the cop-out, as, as she was saying, is their approach, then I think they have failed in their job. So I need to clarify. The issue about predictive value is framed in the context of clinical trials and other forms of research, not initial diagnosis and practice for individual patients in the patient assessment case. I tend to agree with that. Where I come from, improvement is directional and non-continuous. So if you can get something that's better than what you got right now, take it, figure out how best to use it appropriately, but accept the idea that if it's better than what you had, then it's worth doing. And then from there, get better and get better and get better because knowledge is incremental over time. But if, if you don't take those first steps because you say, gee, that's not good enough, then you're going to wind up sitting where you were because you never get started. I'm going to congratulate Wayne on something there. You work in a private healthcare system. So Wayne is actually right. The person who presents to the doctor employs the doctor. So therefore, it's it's the opposite way around here. We have a national health service. So therefore, Wayne is completely correct in his assessment there that they should be working for the person who is hiring them. And that is actually the person who's presented at that front door. And I don't think we've ever said that in the program before. You know what? I don't think we have. No, but we have said that, we, that medical and nursing and that come from a parental role where it's been portrayed in history throughout the decades and millennia. But actually, Wayne has just reversed it and put it on his head. Louise, great point. Wayne, fantastic contribution. Okay. Fantastic. Wayne, have a lovely weekend and a pleasure as always. Thank you. And you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, folks. Bye-bye now. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, September 15th, with our next episode. We're exploring two possible topics, each of which will yield a fascinating conversation. I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.